Well, this morning we're continuing in our uh, Sunday morning series called Recommissioned. It's brilliant to have Stephen and Kat back with us this morning. Stephen's going to be opening God's word uh, to us in just a minute or two. So um, our title for this morning's sermon is People Who Represent God to the World. And our scripture reading is from Exodus chapter 19. Um, It's found on page 77 of the Pew Bibles. And we'll read that together now. Exodus chapter 19, verses 3 to 6. When Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Good morning. Um, it is great to, to be back with you this morning um, as we continue in this series thinking about um, how we become the people God made us to be. Um, so just before we come to, to think about the, the words that Rachel has just read from, from God's word, let's, let's pray together. Lord, we, we come before you again and we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is not some dusty book from thousands of years ago, but that it is your word, that through it you speak to us, that through it you reveal yourself to your people, that through it you tell us about who you are and who you made us to be. So Lord, as we come to think about your word now, we pray that you would speak through me. We pray, Lord, that that we would speak words uh, of truth. That, Lord, you would reveal your will to us um, through your word. And Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. So Lord, speak to us now. Amen. Um, Some of you will will know who uh, Kanye West is. Some of you might not. Um, Kanye is is one of the most... Sorry. Struggling with the cold at the minute, so I shall be be sipping as we go. Kanye is one of the most high-profile celebrities on the planet. He's been everywhere over the past couple of weeks because this man, who once famously said, I am a God, is now saying, Jesus is King. He apparently became a Christian a couple of months ago, and now everywhere he goes, he wants to talk about it and rap about it um, everywhere. Frankly, he's, he's saying some really great stuff. He's saying some weird stuff too, um, but he is a baby Christian, and he needs a lot of prayer because he is surrounded and immersed in almost every temptation that there is. But here's a guy who has only recently seemed to have had some sort of experience with Jesus, And he is incredibly excited about sharing him with others. 
and representing him to the world. Now, we may not have quite the same reach as Kanye, and people may not be just as keen to hang on our every word or our every action, but we are also called to be people who represent God to the world. And that's, as Rachel said, our title for today, people who represent God to the world. That's what we're called to. That is what Kanye seems to be trying his best at the minute to do. And I hope he continues to do for the rest of his days. But it's something we struggle with. So this morning, we're, we're going to look at one of the, the many Bible passages that outlines some of what God says about this topic. It's Exodus 19, verses 3 to 6. And in it, God talks about past, present, and future grace. He says, because of the grace that I've shown you, because of the promises of my never-ending grace that I have given to you, live in my grace, sharing it with others as my kingdom of priests and as my holy people. Past grace, future grace, shaping who we are and how we live in the present. So past grace. The beginning of this chapter, we find a promise fulfilled. The promise of Exodus 3.12. Back at the burning bush, God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. The start of this passage, we see Moses returned to this mountain where God first spoke to him, and the people are with him. People who have just been rescued by God's hand. He has shown them his power in those signs that he did in Egypt. He has shown them his grace in how he rescued this people that didn't deserve it, that didn't earn it. And he has shown them his faithfulness. He has kept his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now to Moses, to be this faithful God, to make them this great people of blessing. These are a chosen people a people rescued from slavery and shown life by this faithful God. And many of us sitting here today, we're in exactly the same position. We who have been called by God to put our trust in the sacrifice of Christ, we have been rescued from slavery to sin. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And yet we have been gifted this grace. And this grace that we have been shown, it's a continuing thing. It's grace that saves us, but it's also grace that sustains us. It was God's grace that brought them out of Egypt, but it was also by God's grace that the Red Sea parted and the people were brought to safety. It was by God's grace that they were sustained and fed in the wilderness. And it was God's grace that held back his judgment when the people bickered, complained, and were unfaithful to God. God says here that he bore them on eagles' wings. Uh, an eagle at a baby eagle is, is one of the most dependent chicks that you can get. 
They nest for, for close to 100 days. And as they learn to walk and fly and feed, they do so by staying close to the mother, by watching her, by mimicking her. And when it's time for them to leave the nest, the mother watches them closely and has been known to swoop down and grab the chicks that fall into danger. And this is the picture that God gives of his relationship with his people. A God who has borne us to safety. A God who is with us, showing us how to live. A God we can draw close to. A God who brings us close to himself. See, God has drawn the people to this, this mountain where they can be in his presence, just as Moses was at the beginning of the Exodus story. He's soon going to give them instruction on how to build the, the tabernacle, this tent of dwelling for the glory of God, so that they'll know that, that God is in the center of his people wherever they go. But it's not perfect. And we can't look back on this and see it through sort of New Testament eyes. If you read on in chapter 19, you'll see that there is, there is still this distance between God and his people. God appears to them, but he, but he keeps them distant. And he veils himself in smoke as looking upon his holiness would kill them. Even Moses and the priests, although they, they consecrate themselves and they wash themselves clean, are never allowed to see God directly. And we know that, that once the tabernacle and eventually the, the temple are built, that ark of God is kept separate, kept in the holy of holies. And only once a year, the high priest is allowed to enter and make sacrifices before it. God has rescued his people. He has sustained them. He's given them life. He has drawn close to them. But because of sin, there is still this distance, this chasm between them. Thankfully, we live in a, a very different time. God has rescued us from sin, not through Moses, but through Christ. God himself come down not to create a, a temporary solution, but a permanent end to the consequences of sin. A final sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice. One that fulfilled the requirements once and for all. One that dealt fully with our sin and by it grants us the holiness of Christ. Remember when Jesus died, the, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The curtain that separated the holy of holies from the, the rest of the temple. No longer was there to be separation between God and his people. See, we can now stand. Stand in the, in the throne room of God before our king. Because through Christ, we are his adopted children with the same privileges as co-heirs to the kingdom, as Romans 8 reminds us. This is the grace that we live in. We are rescued. We are sustained. We are given life. 
And we have the privilege of drawing close to the God who has poured his grace out on us when we deserved only his wrath. I wonder, do we live in this grace? Do we remind ourselves of it each day? Does it inspire us to have that close relationship with God? To come before him in this this amazing gift of prayer that we have been given? To come before him in adoration for who he is? In thanksgiving for all that he has done? In confession for, for how flippantly we treat this grace? And does it inspire us to ask our loving king, our good father, for our needs and those of others. You see, in encouraging us to to represent God to the world, we're first reminded of all that God has done for us. But we're also reminded of all that he promises to us. Verse five um, in the ESV says this. I think it's a slightly better translation. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. They have been saved by God, and now if they live for God, they will be, as Rachel said earlier, his treasured possession. They will continue to receive this grace into the future. This promise-keeping God will fulfill his end of the covenant to make them this nation of blessing and this blessed nation. To give them people, place, and king. Those are the three promises that God makes to Abraham in Genesis 17. And they have in the, the early safety that they experienced in Egypt, they've become this great nation. They're soon to receive the land. And not too long after this, they will demand an earthly king. Sadly, to replace God as their king. But we know that through the line of David, God through Jesus will once again take the throne and remain king forever. And again, for Israel, these are seen as great promises. But they're temporary and they're temporal. They're about the here and now. They are to be a great nation. They are to be a a treasured possession. But God here is suggesting something more. That he is not only king over these people, but he is king over all peoples, over all the earth. And someday his grace and his promises will extend right throughout the earth. And we live in a time where we have seen this revealed. Through Christ, we are part of the the global nation of God's people. We will one day be part of a renewed heavens and earth where God the King will dwell with us as our King and our Father as we sit as royalty, adopted into the very family of the King through Christ. That is the future that God promises to us. A future of never-ending hope and grace. It's interesting, you see, every time God talks about how we are to live in the here and now, 
he begins by reminding us of where we stand. That we stand in grace. That we are saved, redeemed by him, and we have a glorious future ahead of us. We see it in this verse. We also see it in the wider story of what's going on. God has just rescued these people from Egypt. He's promised to give them the land to become this nation. And now, because they are saved, because they have a great future ahead of them, he's going to give them the law. He's going to give them the way to help them to live for him now. And it's only within this context where God says, look at all that I've done for you. Look at all that I've promised to you. Now live for me. Not to earn it or to pay it off, but because it's already yours. Live for me. Why? Well, God isn't slow to tell us that he has made us He knows what's the best way for us to live, even though we may disagree with it sometimes. But here in these verses, he's telling us to live for him so that we can be his representatives to the world. See, Israel was to be this separate nation, this beacon of light and hope to the world, showing their God of grace to the other nations around them. And so in these verses, he is saying, look, Because of the grace I've shown you, because of the grace that I've promised to you, live for me now so that others might see me and come to experience that same grace and become my treasured possessions also. And how does he tell us to live? Two ways. He says we're to live as a kingdom of priests and as a holy nation. See, priests are those who stand in the middle. They stand in the middle between God and the rest of the people. The role of the priests was twofold. They were to teach the people about who God is and how to follow him by teaching them his law. And they were to bring the people into God's presence by offering sacrifices on their behalfs. The priests were those who brought God to the people and lifted the people before God. Israel's role as a, as a priestly kingdom was to show God to the nations, to teach those around him about him and be a blessing to them. A task that they, they weren't always great at. And that's what we're called to as well. We are a representative people. We are called to represent God to the world, to help others to come to acknowledge the living God as their God. In 1 Peter 2, uh, verses 9 to 12, Peter, probably writing to, to Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, says this, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare 
the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter, in quoting Exodus 19, verse 6, amongst other Old Testament verses, is showing us that this task given to the Israelites as they become a nation is the same task given to us who are in Christ. We are to declare this God who has given us life to others. We are to live for him in such a way that everything that we do, everything that we are, points people to him. Even as they curse us, and accuse us of being on the wrong side of history. So how do we go about this? How do we go about this difficult task of sharing the hope we have, this grace that we have been shown? It's by looking at the other thing that we're called to be, a holy nation. Now, when we talk about holiness in in terms of God, we're, we're talking about perfection. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. If you know anything about the Hebrew language, they they sometimes repeat words to show significance because they don't have a a lot of adjectives. So sometimes you'll hear something being written. You'll see in Hebrew the word like pet. It's a pet, pet. It just means it's a big pet. Okay? If you see a pet, 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 that means it's a huge pet. Um, But they don't very often use a word three times. In Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4, where we get this holy, 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 it's actually the only occasion where we get a description of God repeated three times, showing that God is holy beyond anything else. However, when the word is used of us, it isn't talking about perfection. It means something a bit different. Because we know that we can't be perfect. It's impossible. And sometimes we as Christians, we put on a pretense that we are perfect or that we're better than other people. And it's one of the most destructive things to the church and to our witness as Christians as we can imagine. Holiness in in reference to us means being set apart or being distinctive. When God calls us to be holy, he says he's calling us to live differently from others. Our lives simply shouldn't look like the lives of everyone else. In Leviticus 18, verses 3 to 4, God says this. He says, you must not do as they do in Egypt, where you used to live. And you must not do as they do in the land of Cana, where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. Obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. 
God is saying, don't look at the nations around you for how to live. The Egyptians and their focus on power and authority and might over others. The Canaanites and their fertility gods promoting unnatural sexual pleasures, success, prosperity, individualism. God is saying to the Israelites, you are different. You are mine. And if you keep your eyes on me, I'm going to show you how to live real life in the midst of all of this darkness. This is the same world that we live in. Where Christians are told day and daily by the fallen culture around us that believes itself to be morally superior, that we are wrong and should be relegated to the past. But you only have to look, not even particularly deeply, at the culture around us, and you see all the fallen, broken things that are present in the nations around Israel. They're still there. They've maybe been repackaged slightly, but it's the same basic principle as what has happened right from the Garden of Eden. People saying, I want to be God of my own life, regardless of the damage it causes to me or to others. And when we look at the history of Israel, what do they constantly do? They look at those other nations and they say, let's be like them. And it always ends in disaster. And what are we constantly tempted to do? We can so easily neglect our relationship with God, our relationship with this God of life, and throw ourselves into the ways of this broken world. Instead of trusting God's perfect way and perfect word, we say, this modern, advanced culture, well, it must be right. Now, how can we, how can we twist this, this out-of-date Bible to agree with it? Or we find ourselves living lives in ways where our families, our friends, our colleagues, if they found out we were Christians, would say, well, I don't see that it makes any real difference to their life, so why would I even look into this? That second Peter passage, it tells us to live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. When Peter says, live such good lives, he's not saying live lives that are better or more morally superior to other people. Although living out God's moral law and character, it will make a difference that way. But he's saying live lives that are so full of life that they can't help but be noticed. Live lives that are characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Live out more and more the character of God that you are growing in his spirit and by your continued and hopefully developing relationship with him, live that out. Represent him in the world, even those parts of your world where you face hostility and negativity, because although they may curse you, they will still see and hear of God through you and may come to know him by the work of his spirit in you. 
God has chosen us. He has given us the, the privilege of being his representatives here on earth. He calls us to live for him, to declare him to others, to be those priests, bridging the gap, to be holy, set apart, living a life that is jam-packed full of the real life that comes from knowing and growing in God. That others, even though they may hate us for it, might still come to see this life and to see that it is the only life where there is real life. But we can only do that when our eyes are focused on him, building that relationship with him, living constantly in the recognition and the realization of the incredible grace that we have already been shown, the incredible grace that continues to sustain us, and the incredible promises of future grace that we know to be certainties for those who have been rescued by Christ. So chosen people, royal priests, holy nation, how will we go from here this week and represent him everywhere that we go. Let's pray.